to know you more today, we pray. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 6. So if you have your uh, Bibles, you want to flip over there. If you have your app, kind of tap on over. Um, I know David was in chapter 2 and we're jumping to 6. Let me just give you a clue on what's in chapters 3 through 5. You're all doomed. I mean, that's literally what the chapters are about. Um, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You haven't listened. Judgment is coming. And I think it's one of the things that makes the prophets very challenging to read through, isn't it? It's like, I just read about this. And I'm reading about it again. And after a while, it can get very depressing to hear that message of doom and gloom. I think another reason it's hard sometimes to read through the prophets is because it's not like a a narrative story. The the prophets would be like, you ever ever know someone who was a genius, but super unorganized? So like if you try to follow them, all their notes are scattered and you, they have that, they're the ones that had that notebook with all the stuff shoved in it. And then the thing they're looking for wasn't even in the notebook you know what I'm talking about. I think the prophets is sometimes like that. It feels like this collection of amazing truth, just kind of like thrown into a notebook that made sense to them, but not necessarily to us because it doesn't follow an order. And sometimes they seem like they're talking about something totally disconnected, but it made sense to them. I think that makes it challenging for us as well. I think another reason prophecy is hard for us to read through and study is because in our culture, we've been trained that we have to approach the scripture to get something out of it that we can do. And a lot of the prophets is not about things that we do, but about things that God is doing. And and they're really, I would say the prophets, and when you're thinking about how do I read the prophets and how do I study the prophets and how do I even preach through the prophets? I think the prophets are really a window into the heavenly. The prophets are really a window into the heavenly or into the divine. We get to see through the prophets things that we would not normally see about God and his character and his plan and his will. And so as we conquer chapter six today, um, I want us to think about the fact that these messages from the prophet are meant to give us a bigger picture of the divine not necessarily of, of the human. Um, so prophets, anybody give me a definition of prophet? It's a messenger from God. Now, a lot of times when we think of prophets, we think of people who are telling the future. That's not necessarily part of their job description. They, they were just messengers of God, um, though often their message did tell of the future. Uh, their main point was to reveal God, his message, his character, and his will to the people. That's what the prophets did. And so Isaiah is no different. We get to chapter six, and it's really a pivotal chapter uh, in the book of Isaiah. It's probably one that that, that I heard a lot of growing up in college. So I went to a Bible college, right? And you have missionary speakers coming in all the time, and they get to Isaiah chapter six, and they get to verse eight. And it seemed like every mission agency would quote this verse, right? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who will I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And there used to be signs on the back of the church. Here I am, send me. First, can I just say this is probably not a great passage for a missionary call. Can I just throw that out there? Because this is a passage about doom and gloom. And that's not what we're thinking of with the missionary call. It's just not a good one. Um, second, I'm really not even sure this is a call at all. And as I read through commentaries, some of them called this Isaiah's calling. 
This was God calling Isaiah. If so, then what about the visions he's already had? What about the first five chapters that we read that took place before this? And we knew it took place before this because chapter one started out during the beginning of um, Uzziah's reign. And this chapter starts out toward the end of Uzziah's reign. So if this is his call, what was he doing speaking for God before this? I really don't think it's his call. So I want to kind of get those things set aside and say in both instances, if we think of this as a missionary call for us or a call to Isaiah, we're really, in both of those, missing the greatest value of this chapter. This chapter is not about the human in the chapter. The human is the smallest part of this chapter. This chapter is about the divine. And we try to come up with that one application point, that one thing that we can get from it to humanize this chapter and give us something that we can do. And that is not what this chapter is about at all. Um, well, I shouldn't say at all. It is about this much, okay? But it's really this much about the divine. And so I want us to go back to verse one of chapter six and see what this chapter is really all about. Um, because it really sets up the rest of Isaiah, the book. It also sets up a lot of the New Testament um, by focusing on God and, and who he is. So let's start. We're going to go back to um, chapter six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, and they each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he replied, okay, go. <laughs> say, these, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull and deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. And then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants and houses are without people and the land is ruined and desolate and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. And though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. 
So we start out in verse one with Uzziah. Now, Uzziah was a good king. There were, there were several good kings in Judah, not so much in Israel. Uzziah was a good king in, Israel, in Judah, and he did have a problem at one point. At one point, he decided he wanted to offer incense to the Lord in his temple, and the priest said, you shouldn't do that. And God said, they're right. And so God plagued him with a skin disease, which we assume is leprosy, but we don't know for sure. So other than that, that one instance, Uzziah was very zealous for God and followed God. And we started out the book of Isaiah with the beginning of his reign. And we end, then we get to chapter six and it's toward the end of his years. And that puts it approximately 740 BC, which is approximately the time that Israel is going into captivity. So this is a pivotal time in the nation because at this time, the good king of, of Judah is, is on his deathbed and Israel is about to be taken over by the Assyrians and taken into exile, okay? So when you see this reference to the king, it's trying to give you a focal point of a date and time and the events that are going on because this chapter is not about this king. <laughs> um, by the way, his son was also a good king after him and then it goes downhill kind of from there, but Uzziah was, was a good king. But it's not about this king. The king is there as a date marker. And so Isaiah has this vision. And in this vision, he says, I saw the Lord. Now, we focused on a lot of Hebrew words. We've talked about the word Yahweh, which is the name of God, right? We've talked about the word Elohim, which means a spiritual being or a God. And so actually you have El, which is singular of God, and you have Elohim, which is plural. And then when it's the Elohim, it's talking about the God, meaning Yahweh, the title. In this chapter, we're introduced to another name of God, another title, I should say, that's used for God, because it's not actually a name. And it's Adon, A-D-O-N, which means Lord or Master. And where one shows, where Elohim shows him as a spiritual being, and Yahweh shows his personal name, Adon shows his position or his power as Lord or as ruler. And this title, Lord or Master, actually just like we have El and Elohim, we have gods, and there are many gods, but then there is the God. There are many lords, but there is the Lord. Matter of fact, one of the titles of God is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How many of you have heard of that phrase before? Well, yeah, it kind of gets thrown around. What does it mean? I think it's interesting that when we talk about him being the God of gods, we're like, there's no other gods. Well, there, actually, read the Bible. It does talk about other gods. There are other gods. But there are also other lords and there's other kings, but there's one who is supreme over them. Uh, a good example is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. It says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods. And the Lord of Lords, the great, mighty, and awesome, awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. For the Lord, for Yahweh, I'm going to read this now, putting in the, the Hebrew names because it makes it makes it a little bit different. For Yahweh, your Elohim, is the Elohim of Elohim. <laughs> That's how I would read to somebody who's Jewish. Yahweh, your Elohim, is the Elohim of Elohim, and the Adon of Adon, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring El showing no partiality and taking no bribe. Basically, it's saying, listen, there are people that are in this category, king, 
and then there's the king. There's lords, and then there's the lord. There are gods, and then there is the god. And it's really cool. I like it. Um, this Lord of Lords is ascribed to the Father in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 6.15. It's a, it's a title given to this Lord of Lords is given to Jesus in Revelation 17.14 and Revelation 19.16. Um, there's this, this concept that permeates the Old Testament into the New Testament of God being greater than what we experience on this earth. But that also means realize that what we experience on this earth is a small picture into who God is. We understand what, what lords are and kings are. Um, we understand what bosses are. We understand good bosses and bad bosses. Um, well, if God is the boss of bosses, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, then we kind of get an idea of what it means to have him in that position. So we start out with, I saw the Lord and he was seated on a throne. Now, when you think of thrones, what do you think of? What's that? King, a king, right? Some of you are thinking, the Game of Thrones, right? How many of you went right there automatically? Come on, be honest. Some of you are thinking TV shows. I know it. So when you think of thrones, you think of kings. You think of royalty. You're seated on a throne, and the train or the, the cape, the tail of his robe, filled the temple. So here you have this picture of God on a throne in the temple. That's his vision. Was it an earthly temple? Was it the earthly temple? Was it a heavenly temple? Um, yeah. Um, depending on who you read, it, it's both. Uh, it could be both. But the train of his robe filled the temple. So this throne imagery goes beyond just Lord to King and giving the idea of royalty and of rule. And the throne was high and lifted up, showing it above others. Um, and his, the hem of his robe filled his temple. So the temple um, at that time was the earthly dwelling of God. It's where God came to earth to be among humans, right? So we started out in the Garden of Eden with God and man together, and man sinned. And it wasn't until the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness when the tabernacle was set up that, again, God had his dwelling place on earth with man. And the tabernacle turned into the temple, which became a permanent place for God's residence. And so what you have in this picture of the temple is the heavenly coming down to meet with the earthly. Okay? It's, it's a picture of those two worlds colliding, the divine and the human meshing together. So whether it was a heavenly temple or an earthly temple is really not the significant part. The significant part is that God has brought together heaven and earth for this event. And we can't fully understand all of what must have been going through Isaiah's mind and what he saw, um, but we do know that we have a divine throne and we have a, a king on the throne and we have the glory of God in this temple as well, we're going to see. Um, both realms represented. The heavenly realm represented by these creatures called the seraphim or the seraphs as well as Yahweh. And then the earthly realm is represented by whom? Isaiah. So you actually have representatives from both realms in this location as well. So we're introduced to these seraphim. Well, what are they? Um, now the New American Standard Bible Dictionary defines them as fiery serpents. 
Fiery serpents, by the way, was often a way to refer to poisonous snakes. You know, like because when they bite you, it's fiery. How many of you like snakes? Interesting. All two of you, yeah. And you're married to each other. That's even better, right? So <laughs> that's a good thing, right? So fiery snakes is this idea. And they had three sets of wings. They had eight wings total. And with two, they covered what? Their eyes. Why would they want to cover their eyes? Any ideas? Give me a guess. Because the glory of the Lord was there and to shield their, their faces from the glory of God. Okay. With two of them, they covered their feet. Why would they cover their feet? What would that be a sign of? What's that? Humility and submission. Yes. And with two of them, they flew. All right. Now, I'm thinking about all the Old Testament passages where an angel showed up and it freaked people out and they kind of look like humans. I can't imagine what this would be like to have these serpents flying around with wings, covering their eyes and their feet. And then to make it even like more amazing and crazier, they start this chorus, right? Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts or is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Um, now it does say here, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. One of the reasons I struggle with our English translations is we just talked about Lord being ruler. But then if you look in your Bible, if it has the word Lord there, it has it in like small caps, that's referring to God's name. So it's holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of heaven's armies. It's not referring to him in his ruling position, even though you might get that picture from him being connected with armies, but it's using his name there. Um, so it's holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The, Lord, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I've tried to find out what all of that might mean. And can I just be honest, most of the commentaries are, are quick to admit, we really don't know all of what that means. We can connect it to a lot of different things. But let's just take that phrase, holy, holy, holy. I have to confess, I've sung songs with that phrase in it. I've heard that phrase a lot, but I'm not sure I've really taken time to think through what that means. What do you think it means that holy is repeated three times? What's that? For emphasis, yeah. It could be the Trinity. So there's, there's basically two views, and you guys name them both. Good for you. Um, the two views are, one is it's pointing to the Trinity, in that even later on where, where God makes a statement in the plural, um, that points to the Trinity. I'm going to say that, that if I was going to pick from the Old Testament a way to try to show that the Trinity existed in the Old Testament, I probably wouldn't use this as it's not a strong proof, okay? It could be implied, but it's not a strong proof. But the idea of, re of repetition, of holy being repeated three times, is kind of to make a point. So you've heard of the phrase, the best of the best, right? How many of you have heard of that, right? So you have the best, which are those that are above the common, and then you have the best of the best, which are the best of those. And so then if you had the best of the best of the best, you know, then now you're talking three layers deep. You just can't get any better than the best of the best of the best. So if you have holy, which means to be separated from what is common, to be set apart, God is separated from the common, and he's separated beyond just normal separation. He's, he's purer than just pure. He's right 
more than just being right. He is the, the epitome, the definition of, and the source of righteousness, of rightness, of truth. And so it kind of takes it to this level of he's not just holy, he's not just set apart, but he's set apart beyond that, which what, what, what were some things that were set apart in the Old Testament? What were consecrated is another term that we use, that were holy. Let's see, in the temple, you had utensils. Think about that. You had bowls and utensils that were considered holy. God is much holier than they are. You had priests who were considered holy. We even talked about the fact that we're called to be holy, right? You guys said you couldn't be, but we really find out that we can be. So yeah, we can be made holy in God, but God is much holier than we are. Matter of fact, he's like the holiest of the holy beyond what we can even comprehend as holy. It's this emphasis that you're in the presence of the source and definition of all that is holy. Um, so imagine you're Isaiah and you're standing there in this vision and you're taking in a temple that's full of the glory of God with these serpent creatures flying around declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And when they said it, the foundations of the temple, the walls of the temple shook. Like physically, there was this, this shaking. I don't know what my response would be. I think that Isaiah's response is probably under, understated. He said, I'm doomed. I mean, but I have a feeling it was a lot more than just, oh, this is not a good day for me. I think he was probably scared half to death at the sight of what he saw and really felt that he was totally going to be undone. He even says, woe to me, for I am destroyed. I'm doomed. I've come in contact with the Lord, with Yahweh. I've come in contact with the ruler of all, with the one who controls the armies of heaven who's ministered to by angelic beings that I can't even comprehend, which, by the way, are mentioned nowhere else in the Bible, just in Isaiah. And I'm standing in the presence of this God. I'm done. I'm totally done. So I mentioned that prophets often give us windows into the work of God and the heart of God, and they become hyperlinks to God. So when these seraphs spoke, there was this shaking of the walls, right? Can you think of a New Testament event where something took place and there was a shaking of the earth? Jesus' death on the cross, and then where else? New Testament. Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers. In both of those instances, you're drawn to, the, to God and God's interaction with humans and God's work on behalf of humans, just like it is in this throne room. There's hyperlinks all throughout these passages that are meant to kind of make you click and go back and look over here and go, oh yeah, that reminds me of this. Oh yeah, this reminds, just reminds me of this over here. As a matter of fact, as they said this, the whole temple was filled with smoke, right? What events would that take you back to? 
the Exodus, Mount Sinai, when Moses was up on the mountain and got and, and this cloud covered the mountain and smoke. You have the tabernacle when God's presence showed up in the tabernacle and the whole the whole sanctuary was filled with smoke. When the temple was dedicated with Solomon, the sanctuary was filled with smoke. It was God connecting with humans and humans not being able to be around his glory. And so the smoke filled the presence of where he was because his glory dwelled there. And you have this phrase here, the whole earth is filled with his glory and smoke was everywhere. These are meant to be visual pictures that kind of like, oh, he's taking me back here. Oh, he's reminding me of what God did over here. And he's doing it again in a different way. And you're going to see that it happens in the New Testament again in a different way. So hyperlink, keep track of the hyperlinks. Um, there's also a title. He, Isaiah says, I'm, I'm doomed. I'm a sinful man. He says, I'm a man of unclean what? Lips. Kind of interesting phrase. Like, why would you say that? You just came in contact with a God who is holy, holy, holy. Don't you think you'd cry out, I'm unholy? But instead he goes right to it. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I don't know why he focused on lips alone. Perhaps it was because his calling was as a prophet already to be a mouthpiece of God. How can I be a mouthpiece of a God that's that holy? When, I, when my lips are not pure. Perhaps he realized that all of creation was meant to sing the praise of Yahweh. And that we're called to shake the foundations of the earth with the declarations of his greatness. And yet, we can't even keep from saying bad things about our neighbors or our leaders or our coworkers. Matter of fact, this guy, James, in the New Testament, he's hardcore on this. James chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. You know, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless. It's restless and it's evil. It's full of deadly poison. Interesting, isn't it? Poison again. Yeah. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father. And sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Perhaps you realize that there's none of us that is worthy of declaring the greatness of God. Apart from God's intervention and God doing something. I think that when we encounter the holiness of God, that we are first and foremost made aware of the unholiness of ourselves. And that's where we need to start. Now, I made a comment that we can be holy. And I also make a comment that we can certainly be very unholy at times. And that our own holiness and our own strength is nothing. And it's just filth, the Bible says. Encountering a holy God should make us painfully aware of the reality that our sinfulness should result in our doom because of God's holiness. And that's where Isaiah was. He just came in the presence of a holy God and his comment was, I'm done. I deserve to be done. I should not be here 
I shouldn't, I shouldn't even be allowed to be this close to God. I love the fact that God did not invite Isaiah into the vision just to take him out. You know what I'm saying? Okay, Isaiah, I'm going to show you my glory, but then I got to kill you because you got too close. I don't see that about God anywhere in the scriptures, by the way. Um, God did not invite Isaiah to the vision to show him his own doom, but to reveal the nature and the character and the work of Yahweh to him. He was invited so that he could see the Lord of armies and be recruited into that army to participate in a divine campaign. So as he stands there and says, I'm doomed, one of these seraphim fly over to the altar. Remember, this is the temple. This is a, a temple image, physical or heavenly or both. There's, a, there's going to be an altar. And what did they offer up on the altar? Sacrifices, animal sacrifices for the sins of people. And so the seraph flies over, grabs a coal, brings it over, and he touches Isaiah's lips. And he didn't say, your speech is clean. He didn't say there, now you can speak. He said, what? Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. What a beautiful verse. Do you realize that a creature that attended Yahweh is now attending a human? That the divine is now serving mankind. And this altar is used as a place to atone for the sin of Isaiah, saying his, his sin is removed, it's atoned for. The impurities of his life are gone. His relationship with God is now okay because of a sacrifice that was made. Now, we don't know what that sacrifice was on that altar. It's just the coal that touched him. We don't have any clue at this point about the sacrifice on the altar. That comes in the New Testament too. We're going to actually talk about that as we get closer to, to Christmas time, I believe. But a holy God has the right to destroy all unholiness. And yet it's the desire of Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh, the God of all gods, to cleanse sin and restore relationship with him. Did you catch that? It's his purpose, his mission, his desire, his pleasure to purify people. It's been his mission all throughout scripture. Now, I got a chance to share with you Isaiah chapter one, one of those doom and gloom chapters, right? And we talked about uh, this particular passage where God said, listen, you're silver. You're like silver that's got a bunch of impurities in it. And in chapter one, verses um, 25 and 26, he says this, I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. I'll remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to where they were at the start. And afterwards, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. So God talks about using fire to purify the nation Israel. It's his desire not to wipe out Israel, but to purify them and to restore their relationship with him. It's his desire to do this with mankind from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way through to the book of Revelation. It's part of his desire. It has not changed and it never does change. Um, so God allows this messenger, this angel, this seraphim, to go and to get a coal and to cleanse Isaiah, to cleanse his impurities, his sin, by a sacrifice that was offered on the altar beforehand so that he could stay in the presence of God and not be doomed. 
By the way, I want you to just another side note. Um, Isaiah refers to Yahweh as king. So we have another title thrown in here, which I think is interesting. Um, king, I think, goes back and is meant to um, hyperlink us back again. Isaiah says, I saw the king. I'm doomed. I've seen the king, Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of hosts. Um, when I think of king and I think of king and God as king, my brain goes back to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Samuel. Up until 1 Samuel, and we talked about, we actually studied this passage together. Up until 1 Samuel, God was the king of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people say, we want a king like every other nation. We want to be like them. We don't want God to be our king. And Samuel's upset. And God says to him in, in 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything um, they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. That was the moment that Israel gave up the heavenly king for an earthly king. And it's been downhill ever since. It started out bad with Saul, got good with David, thought maybe he was the hope. Didn't happen. David was flawed. Went to Solomon, thought that was going to go well. No, Solomon was even more flawed. And then the kingdom divides and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And we have a good king here and a bad king there to the point where God wipes them all out. It started with 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then in 1 Samuel 10, it says this. Today you have rejected your God who saved you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. The people demanded an earthly king. And so here you have Isaiah standing before the throne. And even though king hasn't been mentioned anywhere else, he says, I saw the king. He's taking this back to the fact that God has wanted to be the king of Israel the whole time, but Israel rejected him. But it doesn't change the fact that he is still king. It's taking us back to Samuel. All right, side note over. Let's go back to the, uh, to the message here. His sins are atoned for. And rather than wiping out Isaiah, he restores his relationship with him. And then, catch this in verse eight, then I heard the voice of the Lord, the voice of Adon. And then I heard, when you see the word then, it's following a certain activity. What activity happened just prior to Isaiah being able to hear the voice of the Lord? His sins being forgiven. Yeah. After his sins were forgiven, he was able to hear the voice of the Lord. He was also able to speak to the Lord after that time. This is a beautiful picture of what's going to be done through the Messiah as well. I think it's rather significant that it was after that he was able to hear. Um, but there's this interesting phrase. I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send and who will go for us? Did you catch the pronouns? Who will I send? Who will go for us? Now, I mentioned that some people use the three holies and then this us to reference the Trinity in this passage. Again, it can be implied, but it's not, it's not, as, it's not backed as biblically as some other concepts. Um, 
I want to kind of ask you a question here. How many of you ever heard of something called the divine council in the scriptures? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. So this is not something I heard about growing up. This is something that I've had to like, I've been learning about over the last two years, this divine council idea. And it's all throughout scripture, but my eyes have just never seen it. And so I want to kind of help you see a little bit of what the bigger picture is that's going on here. So we already know that in this picture, we have a throne and we have God, the father, or we have the Elohim, the the God of gods um, on the throne. We know that we have angelic beings, seraphs, seraphim, um, that are in this picture. And we know we have a human there and it's the intersection of heaven and of earth. But then there's these two things. Who, who will I send? Who will go for us? Now, the first, the first place that my hyperlink goes back to is Genesis. Let us create man in, in our image. What? We have Elohim there, but also we have this our image. Well, who's this our image and who is he talking to even in Genesis? Um, there's this, I, there's this, um, Really, it's, it's something that the, the Jews were familiar with, but I think in our modern day churchdom, we've lost sight of this concept throughout the Old Testament. So we, it sounds odd to us, but there's this thing called the divine council or the heavenly council. And if you've never heard of it, um, don't feel bad. It was not something that I was taught in Bible college um, either. Uh, but I want you to look at some verses with me and see if you can start to see that there's a bigger picture here. Um, Jeremiah In Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah is speaking to some false prophets. He's speaking about some false prophets. And he says this, who has stood, Jeremiah 23, 18, who has stood in the council of Yahweh that has seen and heard his word? And who has listened attentively to the the word and heard it? So who has stood in this council of Yahweh? Later on in Jeremiah 23, 22, he says, But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have caused them to turn from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. So that's got an implied idea that there's a bigger counsel. And some people use counsel just to say the advice of God. Like you get good counsel, right? From somebody counseling kind of thing, different word. This is a different word, counsel. It's counsel like a council meeting, not like I get good advice. Um, but let's look at some, another. How many of you read the book of Job? Anybody? Job chapter one is kind of disturbing. If you don't understand the idea of a divine council, it's kind of disturbing. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh, and the accuser, the Satan, came with them. Job chapter one is setting up this court case in the divine council where heavenly beings, both good and bad, are coming before Yahweh and presenting their cases. Interesting. Okay, but that's not even the best one. First Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 22. There's this guy, Micaiah. And Micaiah is one of those guys who says God's word, even when people don't want to hear it. We call them prophets, right? And here's what Micaiah says in in 2 Kings 22, 19 through 22. Then Micaiah continued, Listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. You catching some parallels here? Okay, it it gets even crazier. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven around him, on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, 
who can entice Ahab to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? Well, there were many suggestions. And finally, a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. Well, how will you do it? The Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. I bet you've never heard a sermon on that. (laughs) I know I haven't. Like, what just happened here? I mean, aside from the fact that you have God saying, okay, go ahead and destroy this guy. You're going, what's going on with that? Um, That whole idea of God hardening people's hearts is a topic that we can't get into in this message, but it's a tough one to try to swallow. Um, The Old Testament seems to teach that there is a divine court or council of Elohim, of spiritual beings, both good and bad, that answer to Yahweh. That when God is on his throne, it is not just God, but there are, there are heavenly beings, other gods, Elohim, lesser gods, other spiritual beings, because that's what the word Elohim means, that also exist in the presence of God. And that he is the God of gods, that he is the Lord of lords, not just on earth, but also in heaven. Jesus prayed that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what is his will in heaven? He rules in heaven like he wants to on earth. The picture of Isaiah 6, again, let's go back and think through what's happened. In verse 1, we have a throne with the Lord on it, and the hem of his robe fills this temple. In verse 2, we have heavenly beings around the throne that are ministering to God, and then also minister to Isaiah a little bit later on. And we have Yahweh, the king, the Lord of armies mentioned in verse 3. And we get to verse 8, and it says, I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? Can you picture the council? Can you picture that he's speaking to the seraphim as well as to Isaiah? and possibly even to the armies of heaven as well. Who will go for us? And then, the seemingly least significant of all the creatures that could be possibly in this room, Isaiah the human, says, pick me. And Yahweh says what? go. It's amazing to me that a holy and powerful God would first of all allow any human to enter his presence. And even more amazing that he was invited there by Yahweh himself to then become a mouthpiece for him. Now God could have sent us a spirit God could have sent another being. That's what he did with the other king, with Ahab. But he chose to use a human. I think that's amazing. God says, go and say to this people, listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts and turn to me for healing. So God gave Isaiah a really hard message, a painful message. 
to tell the people that God was going to harden their hearts, that God was not going to let them repent. And the hardening of the hearts is, again, a topic I, I we, we like it when we read passages like God hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh was the bad guy, right? But we read a lot of passages in scripture where God hardens people's hearts so that they cannot turn to him. And that's a very tough topic to try to wrap our brains around. I'm not going to try to do that today. And greater minds than I have wrestled with this for thousands of years. Um, but it's one of those tough topics that you just have to wrestle with for a while. Um, Suffice it to say that God is going to make sure that his punishment is carried out. And this message, the one of the, um, this message that the people will hear, that the people will um, hear but not like listen, that they'll see but not respond, that they'll kind of kind of uh, uh, comprehend but not really understand. This concept is one that's repeated all throughout Scripture, over and over and over again. Um, and Isaiah's, um, this is one of those, remember we talked about chiasmus before chiasmus is where it's that pattern where it goes A, B, C, and then C, B, A to try to get your attention. That happens in this verse. Um, listen, they'll the listen, but not understand watch, but not, uh, but learn nothing, harden their hearts, plug their ears, shut their eyes. So that they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts. See, it goes A to B to C, and then C to B to A. This is done, again, as an emphasis, just like the repetition is. And it's meant to be a focal point. Um, this passage right here, that verse, which is not the verse of hope, that verse is quoted in every one of the Gospels. And the book of Acts. It's quoted in... Luke chapter 8, verse 10, Matthew 13, 14, and 15, Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, and John chapter 12, verse 40. All four of the Gospels, Matthew 13. Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen. He even uses repetition and the chiasmus. You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would heal them. This is said about the Jews in Jesus' day. So just like we have in the other prophecies, where a prophet speaks, and it can, it can deal with time in the present, it can also be dealing with time in the future. And so he's speaking about the nation Israel. It's about to go into exile, but he's also talking about a day that's yet to come with the Messiah, where the same things will be said. The Apostle Paul says this in Acts chapter 28, verses 26 and 27. He declares that because the Jews' hearts were hardened, and because they would not see or hear um, or, or listen, or with their, um, that they, their hearts would be hard, that the message has also gone to the Gentiles. Not just to the Jews, but God has opened up the way for people who weren't Jews to have the same relationship that he once had with just the Jews. It's a tough message. Now, I mentioned this is not a great missionary call. Imagine being Isaiah. And you have to go speak to a people and say, listen, let me tell you what's going to happen. Your hearts are horrible. And you're going to see stuff, but you're not going to see it. You're going to hear stuff, but you're not going to listen. Your hearts are hard. God's going to punish you. You're going to be wiped out. End the message. You have no chance of repenting. Because God's not going to allow you. I would imagine that Isaiah would have a hard time with that message. 
I would imagine that'd be a very difficult thing to want to say over and over again. So it makes sense that Jeremiah's question is what? I mean, Isaiah's question is what? For how long? How long do I have to give this message? How long do I have to tell people that they're doomed? Verse 11, I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, until their towns are empty and their houses are deserted and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel is deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant, will survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But the terebinth or oak trees, um, but as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it's cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. It's going to happen until all of Israel goes into exile and then some, until there's just a part left over. Now, that part is the hope. We've talked about that. It doesn't sound like hope. But even when we, when we read through Malachi, we realized that God says, listen, I've loved you and I've proven my love for you and that I haven't wiped you out completely. I kept part of you. There's this remnant. There's this hope. But there's a bigger hope. In this chapter, in this chapter, there's this idea of a seed, a holy seed. Now, when you hear the word seed, where do you hyperlink back to? Anybody? Genesis 3, yeah. You go back to Genesis 3:15. After man sinned in the garden, and after God kicked them out, the punishment for the serpent was that the seed of the woman would be at odds with the seed of the serpent. There's another one to chew on for a while, the seed of the serpent. What is that? And it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. It's a promise that God is going to send someone who will undo what the serpent has done, the poison that the serpent has brought into mankind. But this time, it's not the seed of the woman. It's a holy seed. Well, from this chapter, what has been declared holy? Only one thing. God, right? So there's this glimmer of hope that there's going to be a holy seed, a seed that comes from God, that will give them hope. Now, it says the stump of a certain tree Certain stumps, you can cut them down, and you can still have a tree grow from that stump, right? Have you ever seen that? Matter of fact, some of those trees, I can't stand, because you, you don't want those little things growing up from the roots and from the stump, and you seem like you're always cutting them away. But some trees, you can cut them off, and the stump will still grow a branch. This idea of a stump that's going to continue to grow, that the tree has been cut, but the roots are still there, and that there's still something that's going to grow from it, a hope that's going to spring from what has been cut down, that can even take you back to a passage in Daniel where a certain king, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar um, had, a, had a dream and he was cut off like a stump, is what he said. And eventually he came back to rule when he turned back to God. Hyperlinks all over through here. This holy seed is part of a promise that God is going to revive them to bring back his original plan. It takes us back to Genesis 3.15, and it talks about this idea that something is going to grow from the stump. And, and that's another message. And when I say that's another message, literally that's scheduled for December 20th. 
Okay. We're going to try to cover that on December 20th, Lord willing, about this, this idea of this branch and the stump. Um, so the message of hope through judgment continues, as it does for all the Bible. Um, David reminded us last week when we looked at the day of the Lord that when evil persists, God confronts evil. He has to, because he is holy, holy, holy. And a holy God has to confront evil. However, chapter six gives us some insight, I think, more than anything else, into the God that we call Father. See, we're used to calling him Father. Jesus was the first one to do that in this way. And I think we lose sometimes the idea of of who it is that we have a relationship with. The God that we call Father, the one that we can pray to, is the God who is seated in the heavenlies on a throne, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that the Lord of heaven's armies that rules in a heavenly realm as well as an earthly realm is the one we call Father. Wow. He's chosen to adopt us as his children. We don't deserve it. We should be undone, doomed. But God doesn't call us into his presence to destroy us, but to cleanse us and to make us holy like him. He's holy above all other beings, like no other being. He's completely set apart from the common, so much so that we're not even worthy to be in his presence. And yet, even though this God is so far set apart, over and over again, we find him colliding heaven and earth and desiring to be among us. Why? It makes no sense to me, except for his love and his grace. This God that is so far removed from everything that is corrupt chooses to make his dwelling among men. He chose to send his son to live among men. He's the judge of all nations, of every living being. He calls justice and evil into account, but his goal in all of it his restoration of his original creation, not destruction. Friends, this chapter is not about Isaiah's call. It's about Yahweh of armies, the Holy One. He's sovereign. He's just. He's compassionate. And he chooses in passages like this to reveal a little bit of himself to us so that we can understand him better. This supreme judge, commander-in-chief, and transcendent God chooses to invite flawed humans like you and me into his presence. And he offers to purify us, to make us holy so we can remain in his presence, so that we can be his image bearers to the world around us. He has always been interested in being among us, us humans, and his divine plan has been to provide a Messiah to show his compassion for us by allowing us to have a relationship with him. There is no other God that cares for its creation like the God of gods. There is no other Lord 
that rules over its creation with compassion like the Lord of Lords. There is no other judge like the judge of judges that rules with justice, but also compassion and mercy. And that is the God we call Father. And it's my prayer that God will open up our hearts and our ears and our eyes to be able to see how awesome he is and what an amazing work he's done in allowing us to be with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for your mercy. Father, we know that we do not deserve to be in your presence. And yet you choose to give your spirit to us to indwell us. Father, we don't deserve to call you father. And yet you choose to adopt us into your family because of your son and his sacrifice for us. Father, we know that we only deserve to be undone. And yet you prove over and over again your mercy. Father, I pray that you would continue through this Christmas season that we're heading into to open up our minds and our, our hearts, to open up our ears and our eyes, to see and to hear and to understand just how great your love is for us. Father, teach us how to love you and this world around us with the same love and compassion that you've shown us, we pray. Amen. So if uh, somebody would like to go ahead and stop the video back there, that'd be great. We want to thank you for tuning in online. Um, the notes with all the references that we talked about will also be online, Lord willing, at some point uh, by the end of the day today. So if you want to catch those scripture references, feel free. Um, I encourage you to study out the divine counsel concept and see what you find there. Um, but I'll also open it up. Does anybody have uh, any, any questions about what we've shared this morning or any thoughts that they'd like to share? Because we're a small group, we don't mind doing that. A lot to take in. No thoughts?